0: For over a year, Attorney General Merrick Garland faced an enormous amount of pressure to criminally investigate Donald Trump for his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, including the events of January 6th. The crescendo built through this summer, as a January 6th committee in Congress was televising just explosive revelations about what was happening in the White House in and around January 6th. But that committee had no ability to charge anyone with anything. Only the Department of Justice did. And from what everyone could tell, at least from the outside, not a whole lot seemed to be happening over at the DOJ. By July, Attorney General Garland felt the need to speak out and defend his department.
1: There is a lot of speculation about what the Justice Department is doing, what it's not doing, what our theories are, what our theories aren't. And there will continue to be that speculation. This is the most wide-ranging investigation and and the most important investigation that the Justice Department has ever entered into. And we have done so because this this effort to uh, upend a legitimate election, uh, transferring power from one administration to another, cuts at the fundamental uh, of American democracy. We have to get this right.
0: Garland was not wrong. This is the most important investigation that the Justice Department has ever entered into. No president has ever been criminally charged in the history of the United States of America. And that means that Merrick Garland holds one of the most difficult jobs in the entire country. He's now not at the helm of not just one, but two sweeping Justice Department investigations into a former president, Donald Trump. The department's expanding investigation into January 6th and its probe into White House documents, some of them classified, found at Trump's Florida Beach Club. As the guy who has to decide whether to criminally charge the 45th president, Garland faces a ton of complicated questions when it comes to Trump's culpability in those two schemes. And with every passing day, it seems like his department is both casting a wider net and amassing even more evidence. In the last few months, we've seen a clear ramping up of the DOJ's January 6th investigation. It's expanded beyond prosecuting the rioters themselves and now includes the fake elector scheme and attempts to obstruct the certification of Biden's election win. This month, the department issued roughly 40 subpoenas, including ones to top Trump allies and seized the phones of two Trump advisors, again, as part of that January 6th investigation. Yesterday, three Trump lawyers were spotted at the D.C. federal courthouse, leaving around the same time as the Justice Department's top January 6th prosecutor. Today, CNN and The New York Times report that Trump's lawyers were there trying to essentially stop high-profile Trump administration witnesses from providing damaging testimony to the grand jury in the DOJ's now absolutely sprawling investigation. That investigation, according to former federal prosecutor Jim Walden, Looks like it is now, quote, a multi-pronged fraud and obstruction investigation. Walden told The Washington Post, it strikes me that they're going after a very, very large group of people. So the department is talking to everyone and trying to gather basically everything. But ultimately, what happens here, who, if anyone, gets charged with what, if anything, that's going to be up to the attorney general, Merrick Garland. And then there is Mar-a-Lago. And Trump's private stash of classified documents, a DOJ investigation that was for a time on hold as the government battled the Trump legal team in court. But it is very much now full steam ahead. After a federal appeals court this week overturned Judge Eileen Cannon's ruling and gave the Justice Department a green light to continue its investigation into those roughly 100 classified documents. Today, we learned that the intelligence assessment, the ODNI investigation, that is officially back up and running as well. And that's important because that intelligence assessment is looking into the potential national security risks and fallout of that classified information potentially being improperly disclosed. And a lot of people, including some very high profile Democrats, are saying that Mar-a-Lago, rather than January 6th, is the investigation where Merrick Garland might want to use the full force of the law against Donald Trump.
2: Will he face charges for January 6th?
3: Well, I don't know. January 6th may be harder to prove than maybe some of the charges that could come out of the uh, material found at Mar-a-Lago. Some of this stuff is really sensitive. You know, it's about people who risk their lives to give us information about what's going on, Mm -hmm. pictures that they take. I don't know what he's doing with it, but I can't help but believed that he thought there was some financial or political gain to him having it.
0: With every passing day, instead of winding down, these investigations seem to be gaining steam. New witnesses, new evidence, new leads. This week, the New York attorney general, Letitia James, not only filed a $250 million fraud lawsuit against Trump and his business, But she also said that Trump's business fraud had likely violated federal criminal law and referred that significant case to, guess where, the Justice Department. It is clear that the attorney general has a whole lot to hunt down in at least two separate investigations and maybe possibly three. And then, after all that is completed, he has to make the biggest call of his career. Today, The Washington Post reports on the decision facing Merrick Garland, quote, the Justice Department from Attorney General Merrick Garland on down has repeatedly said that no one is above the law. But legal experts say that prosecutors may still feel they need a serious can't miss case to file criminal charges against a former commander in chief. If authorities were to seek an indictment against Trump at either the state or federal level, these experts say there would need to be compelling evidence that a crime had been committed. But they write, in addition, the alleged crime would have to be quite serious. How serious? Over to you, Mr. Attorney General. Joining us now is Jim Walden, a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, who I should note has argued several times in front of Special Master Judge Raymond Deary in that role. Jim, thanks for being here. Thank you. So as you look at these two cases, I'll set aside uh, Letitia James's invest lawsuit for the moment. When you look at Mar-a-Lago and you look at what happened on January 6th, do you think One of these one of these investigations is potentially stronger and can support a criminal indictment against former president rather than the other.
1: I think the January 6th investigation, both before, during and after the insurrection, is definitely uh, more red meat. There is going to be more witnesses. There are more aspects of criminality. Uh, They cover the country, if you think about it, from Washington, D.C., to Georgia and uh, Colorado, So I think that that's going to take the most time. And Merrick Garland's going to have one shot at this. They cannot bring successive cases against Donald Trump. That's never going to fly. So I think that they are working hard on everything, but they are going to put together a massive case that puts the former president with a lot of other very unseemly people in a range of crimes.
0: You have put together what is a very... Um, instructive graphic that I will pull up. Well, I will ask our beautiful production team to pull up right now. This is what you see as the sort of the, the wheel and spokes of, of uh, a criminal charge, effectively. Uh, can you there are a number of there are a number of charges that you outline here. Among them, I think two of the most kind of explosive and under discussed murder conspiracy. And And there you specify Mike Pence. Can you talk a little bit about how you see. Trump potentially being involved in murder conspiracy.
1: So the way you would d- describe this kind of an investigation is right on point. Uh, prosecutors refer to it as a hub and spoke RICO conspiracy. And at the center of the hub the uh, the round wheel is all of the primary people and in the graphic there are some people named but literally the people at the center of this uh, were too big to fit on the graphic. Um, So that's really the nerve center of the conspiracy. But as in an organized crime case, which the racketeering law was designed to address, there are all kinds of crimes. There's murder, there's extortion, there's gambling, there's prostitution. And the reason that Rico is so powerful is because you can bring all of those crimes together under. And the Pence uh, murder conspiracy, I think, is really fascinating because obviously we don't know all the evidence yet. But what we do know is that uh, at the ellipse, the president was disparaging Pence Pence had already communicated that he was not going to uh, stop the election from going forward. Trump tweets. You can see in the videos the crowd surging forward. Mm -hmm. His staff tells him that there are people there saying, hang Mike Pence president, is reported, to say essentially he deserves it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot that we don't know. He knows
0: they're armed. He doesn't want the security systems to be put in place. He wants them to take him down. And then we don't know what actually happens in the 187 minutes while he's in the White House. But it doesn't sound like he was doing anything to ensure Mike Pence's safety. There is a lot of talk about the pressure campaign on Pence being a, a topic of future January 6th committee hearings. There is also pressure for Vice President Pence to testify. Do you think there's any world? in which Mike Pence testifies?
1: I believe that Mike Pence is different than Donald Trump in many ways. And I think that while he had to toe the party line during the course of that administration, that he's more like traditional Republicans than President Trump. So whether they will force him to, I hope that he does. Uh, I think Jacobs' testimony was incredibly powerful. Seeing the footage of what he and his family went through on that day was horrific.
0: What about money laundering? I know you have fraud on there as well. There's been some talk of the investigation into the Save America PAC. But what specifically, where do you see the money laundering factoring into all this?
1: So this is really interesting. But if you think about it, uh, this is exactly what happened to Steve Bannon with the Build the Wall. They brought charges for fraud and money laundering, because when you raise money through fraud, That's illegal proceeds. And when you then use those proceeds for purportedly legitimate, that's a form of money laundering. It's not all just like the cartels, right? When you have illegal money and then you use it, that's a subject of the money laundering statute. So uh, that's another possible thread for them. And based on the subpoenas that that I've been seeing, it it really seems like that's one of the themes of the requests.
0: I just— I I, I say this, we're talking about these charges. And as much as we have covered this topic, as much as we have exhaustively chronicled the misdeeds of Donald Trump, to be talking about a former president and saying the words murder conspiracy and money laundering along, if we could pull that graphic up again. And look at what you think is a former assistant U.S. attorney. The president could be charged with is staggering. And I don't think we should lose sight of the gravity of all this and the people named in the center of this. One of the things that seemed to be happening at the outset of the DOJ's investigation is it seemed to be a ground-up investigation, right? We were There seemed to be a lot of focus on the unnamed January 6 rioters. And I know at least some legal minds, including Andrew Weissman, said that's the wrong way of going about this. Mm -hmm. We should be looking at this as a top-down conspiracy. You certainly have a top-down pyramid right there. Not quite a pyramid, but you know what I'm saying. You're looking at key players in the Trump administration, in the Trump circle— do you think what that is what the DOJ is now doing as well?
1: I actually think that's what the DOJ has been doing all along. I mean, Merrick Garland was under a lot of pressure right from the beginning. Uh, the insurrection was horrific. It was anti-democratic. It was one of the worst things that ever happened in our history. He needed to bring action, and they were the low-hanging fruit. So I believe that we're seeing now the results of months and months, maybe a year of planning to get to this stage where, just remember, five former uh, folks in the White House circle went into the grand jury. Within a couple of days, 40 subpoenas go out, search warrants are served, phones are seized. This is not something that was planned overnight.
0: Yeah. I, I got to ask you about Mar-a-Lago because there has been, uh, you, know, you get conflicting opinions on this. It is a tighter case. It is more uh, seemingly easy, easily provable. But you don't think that the gravity of that kind of obstruction Uh, will will support effectively a historic indictment of a sitting former president. Is that fair to say?
1: I think that's completely fair to say. I mean, a documents case uh, where you have someone that um, has been known to be sloppy, was probably getting counsel from lawyers, um, even though some of that information had no business anywhere near uh, where the president was keeping it. That is a case that if you indict the president, the former president on that charge, it is going to be much more difficult to defend. It will be seen as political as opposed to this kind of multi-pronged RICO conspiracy where there's there could be even street level crimes, even if the president himself is not named in it. There are certainly people that were guilty of sedition, as I think many people believe the president was. And when you commit. When when there is a murder or death in the context of a of a felony, that's felony murder. So putting Pence aside, there's a valid case for them to put together this massive conspiracy with all of these prongs.
0: Yeah. And that is something Joyce Vance, one of our MSNBC legal analysts, has also echoed, echoed. I just want to say, as far as lives lost, the ODNI assessment is not yet complete. No. And if human intelligence sources have been compromised or even extinguished, that will probably ratchet Mar-a-Lago up to another level. Both of them just, we're talking about a former president. I know. It's, we, I think everybody needs to remind themselves. We are not talking about just anyone. This is someone who is running the country, and look at the bevy of charges that are on the table. Staggering. Jim Walden is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York. Jim, thanks so much for thanks. coming on and, and talking to us about some very compelling things. Thank you. Much more ahead this hour, House Republicans are out with their new legislative agenda today, much to the delight of Democrats running against them. Jennifer Palmieri joins us next. And so-called voting started today in occupied parts of Ukraine regarding whether to formally join Russia, a move that is being decried as a sham by Kyiv and its Western allies. Russia expert Julia Yaffe joins me to discuss. Stay with us. Today marks day one of early voting in the 2022 midterms. Voters in Minnesota, South Dakota, Virginia and Wyoming began casting early ballots this morning. And with less than 50 days until Election Day, Republicans have found themselves on the defensive after a summer as firm favorites to take back the House. Looking to regain some of their lost political momentum, today the top three House Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and Elise Stefanik, travel to southwestern Pennsylvania to unveil the new GOP agenda. They are calling it their, quote, commitment to America, a nod to Newt Gingrich's earlier contract with America from the 1990s. This one is pretty scant on details. One awkward feature of today's launch, the slick video purportedly showing scenes of the American heartland House Republicans aim to run That actually showed images of Mother Russia. That is correct. The new Commitment to America video used stock footage of a drilling rig and a little boy playing in Russia. At any rate, in their one-page Commitment to America, the House Republicans note they plan to, quote, protect the lives of unborn children and their mothers. But when Kevin McCarthy and other Republican leaders spoke about the plan today, they steered clear of any mention of abortion, probably because after the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. Abortion bans have proliferated across the country and, in turn, energized Democrats. One area, though, where there was no hesitation or uncertainty was around culture war issues. For example, the Republicans promised to, quote, secure the border and combat illegal immigration, fully fund effective border enforcement strategies, infrastructure and advanced technology to prevent illegal crossings and trafficking by cartels. Please let us note the fact that Governor Ron DeSantis had to go searching for migrants in Texas to fill a charter flight since there weren't enough in his own state of Florida. McCarthy also promised to make, quote, parents' rights a centerpiece of American education, the kind of anti-CRT legislation that prohibits a full accounting of American history and bans books by Toni Morrison and Margaret Atwood and Art Spiegelman. Other highlights included getting rid of IRS agents, making sure, quote, women only compete in women's sports and sticking it to China for the COVID pandemic. That is what House Republicans offered up to American voters today. Immigration bans, IRS attacks and parental rights laws that censure inclusive curricula. Also abortion, but also not really abortion. On that topic, President Biden today made sure the GOP's position remained top of mind.
1: So in 46 days, America's going to choose. If Republicans win control of the Congress, abortion will be banned. But if you give me two more Democratic senators in the United States Senate, I promise you, I promise you, we're going to codify Roe. 46 days to the midterms. We need to be crystal clear about what we're, what's on the ballot, because there's a heck of a lot at stake that's on the ballot.
0: Joining us now is Jennifer Palmieri. I call her Jen. Former White House communications director in the Obama White House. Former communications director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. And now, bumpa a da co-host of The Circus, Womp Womp, which is back this Sunday with a new episode featuring Jen's interview with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. My friend, it is so it is it's such a pleasure to have you on, like, this, on this show,
3: which is a different show than the one we used to be on together. Um, as you said, it's like it's like you're it's like when your friends from home came to visit you at summer camp. <laughs> this is just like summer camp. Only fewer horses. OK, <laughs>
0: so ab- abortion. <laughs> Biden does not would like the, like to have the Democrats march uh, to the, the polls under a, a, an abortion banner. And I wonder strategically whether you think this is the issue that can hold the Senate and the House for them? Because we've been talking about a lot of issues over the course of the last two years. Right. And this certainly seems to be animating and energizing, but is it enough?
3: I think that, I mean, I, I, know, what I, I know what the White House thinks. Yeah. I think they think that abortion helps a great deal. You know, and I think that when, when the decision happened, when Dobbs' decision happened on June 24th, and, you know, I was pretty devastated. And many uh, of us were. I think many of us were. Um, but you had a sense, like, this has got to be worth... A couple percentage points and a couple percentage points and really tough raises is going to mean a lot. But I think that what's what's happened is it doesn't stay isolated in the abortion lane. Hmm. Right. Do you know what I mean? It's like they are taking this right away from women. And you see how the candidates fight back on, you know, on the issue. And that may and if they do it well, it may accrue leadership benefit, uh, you know, leadership points elsewhere. Like Hmm. that is. And I want to come back to like what I think Biden thinks, but just on the on you know about what they should run on, but just on the question of abortion. You know, um, I spent time uh, with Governor Whitmer. Yeah. I'm wearing the exact same outfit that the clip that you just showed, because <laughs> as you know, I haven't been home in eight days, and so I have a f- only a few girl. Outfits. I know how it is. You know how it is. It's a good outfit. Um, I bought it in Detroit. Uh, I did uh, at the H and M in Detroit. But you know what she did was in April. Before the before Dobbs, before it even leaked, she filed, you remember this, she filed a lawsuit, yeah. right, uh, to challenge their 1931 law that bans abortion. The zombie law. The zombie law. And what she told me in the interview was that she started working on that the night Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Amazing.
0: So, yeah. And by the way, a lot of other Democrats, <clears throat> maybe some in the White House, weren't Thinking as strategically as the governor was,
3: so she was. She was like, "What you know? What can we do? What are our options?" And that's why in twenty 2020, twenty, early twenty twenty two, she pursued to challenge us. And people criticized her at the time. They said, "You know, it's too, uh, it's alarmist, or maybe you're going to trigger the law." But she did that. Then she did, you know, and I know NBC has covered this too. She does a lot of roundtables, women, women doctors, moms, young women, how they feel about abortion, um, and that seems to have created. A sense of community and, mm-hmm. um you know, and uh, obligation that the women feel to share their stories to know like, hey, I had abortion or, you know, or Gretchen Whitmer herself. I was raped in college. And if I, you know, and she, she you wasn't. You think it's pregnant? creating
0: a movement independent of it's the actual like, legislative yeah, issue. So
3: it's like, it, you know, and I know that NBC showed a, a poll this morning that I saw that had abortion ranked number three in terms of what people care about, right, on issues. But it's definitely creating a different kind of energy. You know, so Whitmer, and of course she's running against Tudor Dixon, Yes, who very pro-life, thinks that a, a girl that was a 14-year-old impregnated by a rape should be mm-hmm. forced to bring carry the child to term. I mean, so that is a meaningful, I right. think,
0: data and point. And it's like
3: she's changed, it's like Whitmer's kind of changed the structural dynamics of that race. She was kind of tied, and now she's in double digits, right? It's like, it just turned everything. So if you are... And it's, it's a principled fight for her. Right. She's she's a um, it's, she's a very good messenger on it. Um, that's not going to work for everyone. Well, and yes, she's a very skilled politician.
0: And we're talking really about good. Senate yeah. races that are complicated. There are men yeah. running in them. They are at a disadvantage in many cases, talking about reproductive freedom and yeah. having the yeah. right. vocabulary to talk about it. But I have to ask you, since we spent so much time on it, the Republican commitment to America does this work? I mean, do,
3: who is this for? Who is okay, this? my fav- my favorite thing about it is that is that you can download a PDF pocket card? yes, to for your friends. so like this is a this is this is a maxim we have in politics. You know you're on a losing campaign when the box of message pocket cards arrives from h q. <laughs> So, you no. think know, like, I been- don't think I, I'm not just not to say that I think they're going to lose. But it does show is that they're totally bankrupt of any kind of agenda they can coalesce uh, around. And that has been true. I mean, I was thinking about it. That was true for Speaker Boehner under President Obama. That was true for Speaker Ryan. Right. It is. This is not a new thing that the only thing they can coalesce around is fealty to Trump. Abortion, culture issues,
0: things they're against and putting together a document saying what you are for is proving an uphill challenge for the GOP. Yeah. I have a thousand hours of questions I would like to ask you, but unfortunately, I cannot do that on this television program. Um, Jennifer Palmieri, former White House communications director in the Obama White House and now bump it a bum co-host of the circus. Thank you for your time and friendship. Everybody go watch The Circus on Sunday night. Still ahead here on this channel tonight, Donald Trump cannot seem to stop promoting QAnon conspiracy theories. What's the end game? But first, an exodus from Russia as military-age men attempt to flee Putin's draft for the war in Ukraine. Julia Yaffe joins me with the latest. Stay with us.
2: alpha one commence Wi-Fi device checklist.
1: Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, Oh, my package is here.
4: Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once.
1: All systems go. You are clear for takeoff.
4: This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed.
1: Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows.
2: 2024 is now truly the most important. Important election in the history of our country.
1: Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com.
0: If you turned on Russian TV news today, you might have seen this the massive 50,000-person rally-slash-concert in Moscow supporting the war in Ukraine. Specifically, it was an event to support the multiple referendums that started today to make the parts of Ukraine under Russian control officially part of Russia. The rally was also in support of the quote-unquote partial mobilization of Russian men into the military as Russia tries to ramp up the war it did not expect to lose. Now, if all you did was watch Russian TV, you'd think lots of Russians supported this war and that lots of Russian men were happy to be drafted for the cause. But if you went to the Finnish-Russian border, you'd see this, lines of cars filled with people leaving Russia to avoid the draft. This man, who described himself to the AP only as Yuri from Moscow, underscored his reason for leaving by saying, I think no one, a sane person, wants to go to war. This was the line of cars backed up at a border crossing between Russia and Kazakhstan today, one of the handful of countries where a fleeing Russian would not need a visa. Before Putin's announcement of the draft, the average price for a plane ticket from Moscow to Kazakhstan's main airport was about 300 bucks. Now the cheapest ticket, the cheapest ticket, is more than $8,000. People are leaving in droves. And those who aren't are very quickly facing a tough reality. Forgive the weird shark-like watermark on this video. It is the symbol of a Russian news outlet. The young man here, his name is Dmitry, he's a student. In this video, he's telling a reporter how he got his draft notice that morning. It told him to come to the military office at 3 p.m. He didn't think he qualified for the draft because he's a student. So he thought he'd just clear that mistake up and be on his way. But once he got to the military office, Dmitry was told he would be leaving for training immediately with no notice. At the time of that interview, Dmitry had called his mother in the hopes of saying goodbye, but she was stuck at work. It all happened so fast, he wasn't sure if he would get to see her. This bizarre dance routine in military uniform was part of another pro-Russia rally today. It was held in Crimea, the part of Ukraine that Russia already annexed via stage referendum back in 2014. This rally was also in support of the referenda being held today in the four other Ukrainian regions that Russia has captured in this war. And again, if you watched Russian TV today, you would see plenty of footage portraying residents of these regions happily voting to become a part of Russia. Meanwhile, we are already getting reports that armed Russian soldiers are collecting votes door to door. One reason the one resident told the BBC that you have to answer verbally and the soldier marks the answer on the sheet and keeps it. I'm not sure that would be considered free and fair. It is not news that there is a massive gap between Russian media and Russian reality. But I want to know, as as we all do, what does the average Russian citizen actually think is happening right now? Joining us now is Julia Yaffe, founding partner and Washington correspondent for Puck. Julia, it's great to see you. You're the person with all the answers here, um, and I'm thrilled that you're joining me. Can you answer that question? What does the average, and I'll say rural, Russian who watches state media think is happening right now?
2: The thing is, we don't know what they think. It's very hard to measure public opinion in an atmosphere of such thorough brainwashing and such fear. You know, it's been months since the Russian government implemented a law uh, that sends people to prison for criticizing the army for spreading what it calls fake news, which is basically anything that contradicts the Ministry of Defense or the Kremlin. And people are really afraid, and some people really support the war. And between those two extremes, there are obviously a lot of people, but they're quite uh, quite silent these days. I think a lot of people, as you saw, are voting with their feet. There were a lot of people also crossing into Mongolia today. Um, and And what's also interesting about this draft is we're getting reports out of Russia that they're purposely avoiding uh, drafting too many people from Moscow, from St. Petersburg and from mm. other urban centers. They're focusing on rural areas where they they point out and the you know, these sources tell journalists, you know, there's no there's no independent media there. Uh, people watch TV. there's no opposition there. And they're also focusing really heavily on, places where ethnic minorities live, which is incredibly problematic.
0: Yes. Uh, wh- let me ask you, as as we talk about all the things that Putin is doing and instituting the referenda, I, I, I read <laughs> that you have a slightly different assessment about why Putin is conducting these referenda. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you think his motivation here is?
2: I think the motivation is that You know, I I think we here in the West think of Putin as this bloodthirsty monster, and no doubt he is, but inside the Kremlin and inside Russia and the Russian government, he has become a sort of moderating force. When the war started, it created this so-called party of war, these hardliners who went so far as to publicly criticize him and to publicly criticize his prosecution of the war. They were in fact the only people who were allowed to publicly criticize how the war was going. And they were saying, you're not fighting hard enough. We're fighting with one hand tied behind our back. Mm-hmm. They were calling for mobilization. They were calling for the annexation of these areas. These are people with a very imperialist mindset who, you know, think that basically if Russia called up all its men It could have crushed Ukraine months ago, which is still not true. But I think this is very much a concession to the party of war, and it's a way to annex whatever swaths of territory has not lost, Russia has not lost yet to the Ukrainian counteroffensive, and to say, look, we've added territory in these seven months of pointless fighting.
0: If he's making concessions to the party of war and has been thus far a moderating force, what then do you make of his suggestion that the nuclear arsenal is a potential, is something he would potentially tap into in all of this? Is that a bluff? Is that, what is that?
2: Well, whenever somebody says, I'm not bluffing, what's your first thought, right? I'm bluffing. But in general, the worst Russia does on the battlefield, the more likely it is that they are going to use a strategic nuclear weapon or some kind of nuclear weapon. The question is, how will they use it? Where will they use it? If they use it, I think the chances are still small, but um, they're not zero. And that's really
0: scary. That's Absolutely terrifying. You do make the point that Putin often does what he says he's going to do. Let us all pray that this is not one of those cases. Julia Yaffe, founding partner and Washington correspondent for the media company Puck, thanks for your time and expertise tonight. As always, great to see you. Thanks, Alex. Still ahead tonight, Donald Trump cannot stop amplifying QAnon, and it is raising concerns. What could it mean if his followers embrace the conspiracy theory as well? Stay with us. Foreign-born members of Congress are a rarity. And this past June, Mayra Flores became the first Mexican-born congresswoman elected to the House when she won a special election in Texas. Most immigrants in the House are Democrats. But unlike most immigrants in the House, or even most Latino members of Congress, Mayra Flores is a Republican. And she flipped Texas's 34th district for the GOP, a district long held by Democrats. It went to Obama by 22 points in 2012, to Hillary Clinton by a similar margin in 2016. And then it went to Joe Biden by just four points in 2020. Flores is an example of a new trend in Republican politics. Latino voters increasingly rejecting the Democratic Party and embracing the GOP. In 2016, 28 percent of Latino voters voted for Trump. But in 2020, that number went up to 32 percent. It is a trend that has delighted Republicans and left Democrats very worried. Journalist Paolo Ramos went down to the 34th District in South Texas and spoke to former Democratic voters to understand why they were now voting for the GOP.
4: Is anyone in this room, has, had anyone been a former Democrat at some point? Had anyone ever voted for a Democrat? Raise your hand. Okay, so several of you, why are we suddenly seeing a Republican having so much momentum. What do you all think?
2: We were already conservatives. We were already with conservative values. It's just nobody noticed. They took us for granted. The party, the Democratic Party, left me. I didn't leave the party. We are not to be taken advantage of. We are not to be assumed that because we're Hispanic, we're
4: naturally going to vote Democratic. What does the Congresswoman represent for you all. She is that Latina
2: or Hispanic woman that is saying enough is enough, that our values matter. Here in the Valley, we are for God, for family, for hard work. She does not only verbalize those things, but she actually lives those things and let the chips fall where they may.
0: Paula has been traveling across the country ahead of the midterms talking to Latino voters to understand this apparent rightward shift. The latest episode of Field Report with Paula Ramos, which focuses on Congresswoman Flores' South Texas district, will air shortly. Stay tuned right here on MSNBC at 10 p.m. Joining me now is Paula Ramos. Paula, it's great to see you. We love what you are doing here. Thank you. What do they mean? The Democratic Party has left me. What does that what does that practically mean?
4: It means that they believe that they no longer align with their values. Right. When you think of someone like Myra Flores, the reason why she won one of them was because of her message. It was clear. It was God, family, country. And she bet on this idea that conservatives have been on for many years. It's what Reagan believed in. It's what Trump believed in. It's what Bush believed in, which is, yes, at our core, Latinos are more conservative for decades no conservative movement was truly able to fracture the Democratic coalition until someone like Myra Flores comes around. Yeah. And she sounds like them and she looks like them. And she, too, is an immigrant and she, too, grew up in a working class neighborhood. And she bet on that idea and it started working. The OK,
0: so God, country. What was the other one? Family. Family. At the same time that you that they feel like the Democratic Party has abandoned those values as they see them, the Republican Party is doing some things that one would think would alienate Latino voters, right? I mean, today the National Republican Senate Cam- Senate Committee sent out an email asking supporters where Republican governors should ship migrants next. It is hard for me to understand how. Anybody in this country, and especially immigrants and the children of immigrants, I am one of them,
4: can look at that and
0: say, that's my party. They care about
4: me. Right. I think no matter how you look at that, it is it's cruel. It's hypocritical. It's political. Yeah. Because let's remember, these are two governors, DeSantis and Abbott, that have catered to Latinos through one message. And that is the fear of communism. And here they are punishing asylum seekers For leaving communism. Communism, exactly. No, he's punishing Venezuelan asylum seekers for leaving Venezuela. Yeah. So I think you're right. I I think it will backfire. I think for those Latino moderates, it will backfire. Because there's no way that you see that and you don't see the hypocrisy. At the same time, in a place like the Rio Grande Valley, there's also this, which you've talked about, this like underlying trend of assimilation. Yeah. Where you look at migrants and you look at asylum seekers and you look at brown people that look just like you, Mm -hmm. and you want to look the other way because you want to assimilate. Right, because you 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 feel like success and what it means to be American. It's not that. It's not that. And that's also happening there.
0: Well, and I would assume that being able to identify a congresswoman who exactly. looks like you, but who has reached success, like Mayra Flores.
4: That's exactly That's right. really meaningful. And we're not just talking about Mayra Flores. There's at least two other Mayra Flores. There's Monica de la Cruz that's in my There is Casey Garcia that's in Laredo. What the three of them have in common is that They're Republican. They're avid Trump supporters. They're their daughter of immigrants. They're bilingual. They can speak in Spanish. They all have right-wing policies about immigration, abortion, the economy. But you're right. They look like them. And it's very different when a white man tells you, vote for a Republican versus suddenly these brown Latinas that are changing that. In in Spanish. In Spanish. That's right. The one thing um,
0: that—there are many fascinating aspects of all of this. You speak to a political Latino outreach group— that is advocating for the preservation of conservative values. And they say one of the forums in which outreach has taken place is the church. And it's I'll read the quote. If Republicans don't start strategizing with Latino pastors and churches like the Democrats have done for years, with the black church, there will be no victory for conservative candidates across the country. It is fascinating to me that the church, the church is so mined politically. White evangelicals, a bedrock uh, contingent of the Republican Party. Black church-going Democrats, I mean, uh, souls to the polls is an invention exactly. of the black church and a largely democratic activity. And yet the Latino church has not been, I guess, seized
4: upon in the way that one would expect it to be as an organizing tool. And, and it, that's that was their exact um, decision-making process, right, where they saw the way that Democrats are going into black churches, are mobilizing their base, and they said, wait a second, they've been doing this for decades, why don't we do the same thing? And so... That's one of the ways that flowed Flores won, through her pastor. Mm. Her campaign started in her church, in her evangelical church. Her pastor mobilized the congregation. He mobilized other pastors. He mobilized evangelical Latinos in the area. And not only did it work in the Rio Grande Valley, but they want to nationalize that model. Now, there's a question. Is it fair to compare these Latino evangelical models to black churches? No. Yeah. Are you having the same conversations about social justice and racial equality, or are they becoming these hubs of political indoctrination. Yeah. That is that is an
0: open question. I all of this research, this journalism is so critical and so upends our preconceived ideas about Latinos voters, this country in general. Paula, it's a great series. Thank you for being here. The newest episode of Field Report with Paula Ramos will debut in just a few minutes next at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. It will also be available to stream on Peacock. Coming up, former President Donald Trump's promotion of the QAnon conspiracy theory appears to grow by the day. Will his followers take the bait? That's next.
3: I know nothing about QAnon. I just told you. I know very little. You told me. But what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact.
1: I hate to say that. I know nothing about it.
0: For years, Donald Trump has been claiming he knows absolutely nothing about QAnon, the fringe right-wing conspiracy movement, which claims Democrats are secretly a bunch of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who drink the blood of innocent children. I wish I was kidding. But recently, the former president has been making more explicit entreaties to followers of the Q conspiracy. Over the past few weeks, Trump has increasingly posted QAnon-related content to his account on his social media website, Truth Social. Just last night, he promoted several QAnon-related posts, including a video slideshow that included an image of him in a giant Q superimposed over the Capitol, a giant Q over the abbreviation for the QAnon slogan, and a photoshopped image of himself holding a single playing card with the letter Q. He also posted this sort of terrifying rendering of himself holding an infant that says pain is coming. You should have stayed away from the children. Hashtag save our children. But his overtures to the QAnon crowd go beyond social media. Trump has also been embracing a song that is identical to a QAnon anthem that is well known among followers of the conspiracy theory. At a rally last Saturday, just as, the Trump, just as the song started to play, Trump's followers seemed to respond to it by lifting their arms and holding up one finger in the air, a gesture that appears to echo the QAnon slogan, where we go one, we go all. And tonight, just moments ago, they did it again. At a rally in Wilmington, North Carolina, just as we were coming on the air, Trump once again played that QAnon song, and the crowd once again gave that single-fingered salute. Donald Trump has already convinced about a third of the country that the 2020 election was stolen and was able to use that conspiracy to stoke a violent attack on the seat of our government. Just think what might happen if Trump now openly tells his legions of followers that those same Democrats he claims stole the election are also involved in an insidious plot to drink the blood of children. That does it for us tonight. Rachel will be here on Monday, and I will see you on Tuesday.